Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or details page of your podcast platform. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the magnitude and scale of forgiveness that we see in Scripture through Jesus. A forgiveness and grace that has no boundaries, and in today's message, we are celebrating that forgiveness. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with the fifth message in a new series in the Psalms called Praise and Peace in a Broken World. Uh, but go ahead and turn your Bibles of, to 2 Samuel 12, okay? We're going to start out in 2 Samuel 12 because that's absolutely critical background to what we will uh, be looking at in Psalm 51. Well, a couple, uh, three weeks ago, I think it was, I introduced a book uh, from uh, a friend of mine who's now in heaven, uh, whose name is Ward Patterson. He taught uh, many years. He was campus minister at a big university in Indiana for a while, and then he was a professor at Cincinnati Christian University as well. And uh, a great man of God, incredible writer, and uh, he, he did a series of three books on the Psalms, which basically uh, he has just taken the words of the Psalm and kind of put it in his own words and, and put them in the book so we can use them as prayers. Uh, so we've got all three in the library, and i got all three in my library if you ever want to check those out and just take them. Uh, uh, there's 50 Psalms in each one. Uh, today's is a little bit longer um, than the previous one because you know, there are several verses in the psalm. But I'm going to sit down here again, and uh, we're going to simply let Ward lead us in, um, in Psalm 51 from kind of like more modern terminology, simply as a prayer to God, because this is going to introduce this incredible psalm, uh, in, I think, in a powerful way. But uh, again, you, you follow along, pray, close your eyes, do whatever you want to do uh, to participate in this. And uh, let's make this our prayer with Ward Patterson and with David uh, from long, long ago. Oh God, I am a sinner. The stark reality of that is evident. I am weighed down with the enormity of my transgression. I can no longer excuse it by saying, What I did was what anyone would do under the circumstances. My mind returns again and again to my my waywardness and disobedience. My heart is broken, for I have done evil in your sight. O Lord, have mercy on me. Don't treat me as I deserve. Continue to love me despite this failure. O Father, forgive me. Look on me with compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I confess that I was wrong. I sinned willfully. I acknowledge my guiltiness, my perversity. I have no one to blame but myself. My sin burns like a hot coal in my heart. I cannot forget it. I cannot excuse it. I can only regret it and seek your forgiveness. My sin fundamentally was against you. I hurt others to be sure. I sowed and cultivated sin in another's life with my stubborn indulgence of my evil desires, but my sin was against you. 
I scoffed at your commandments. I rebelled against your authority. I destroyed your or disobeyed your will. I broke my relationship with you. I ignored your love and concern for me. I let you down. I have no plea but guilty. I stand condemned before your judgment seat. I deserve no mercy, much less acquittal. I am so prone to sin. My history is one of constant transgression. From my earliest days until now, I have had a wayward heart, easily enticed to disobedience and self-worship. The truth of the matter is that there is no truth in my matter. Yet you have sought to lead me in the ways of righteousness. You have revealed your truth to me in your word. You have given your wisdom through your prophets. You have disclosed yourself through Jesus, your son. But somehow your truth didn't touch my inner soul. I knew your laws and could spout a lot of pious words, but your will never really affected my innermost thoughts and desires. You wanted deep disobedience, and I gave you surface religiosity. Oh God, give me another chance. Cleanse my heart and my life so that I can begin, and, uh, begin again to serve you with joy and gladness. Wash away my sins. Wipe the slate of my transgressions clean. Give me a new birth to innocence. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity, and I will know once again the blessedness of your approval. Father, help me to get my priorities straight. Give me a pure heart. Clean up my life. Give me firmness in doing your will and the desire to be what I ought to be. Please don't forsake me or cast me off. I need your presence in my life. Restore to me the peace I once had with you. Give me a new desire to do your will. Give me once again the joy that comes with doing it. Help me to get things back in place in this broken and shattered life of mine. Please put the pieces back together so that you may be glorified in my words and actions. I dedicate myself, O oh God, to sharing with others what I have learned through this bitter experience. Before I knew only your precepts, now I know also your mercy and forgiveness. I stand before you not in my pride, but in my weakness and humiliation. Oh, that I could preach a message that would keep others from following my foolish ways. Oh, that my words would de deter others from sinfulness. Oh, that my example could serve the good purpose of warning transgressors of the results of folly. Oh, God, forgive me, and my tongue will ever speak your praise. I will sing perpetual songs of thanksgiving. I will remember you day and night. I will never cease to speak of your grace. If I could earn your forgiveness, Father, you know that I would do it. If, if it were uh, just a matter of making some vow or offering some sacrifice or presenting some significant offering, I'd spare no effort or expense to accomplish it. But I know that, that it's not the outward show of religion you want. As long as my heart is far from you, all my religious activities are empty and futile. I know what you really want of me is a broken spirit. You want me to bring my will under the control of your will. You want me to make your desires my desires. You want me to be humbly subject to your reins. You want, you want of me a contrite heart, a heart that does not excuse sin or explain it away or revel in rebellion or act in human pride and selfishness. 
Father, don't let, me sin, let my sins spill over into the lives of others. Protect those closest to me from the consequences of my failure. Give me an opportunity to return to significant service in your kingdom. Help me once again to be a part of the company of the faithful. And my words, my actions, and my thoughts will continually speak the wonder of your love and forgiveness. Amen. Again, we'll begin in just a moment in 2 Samuel 12 before we move on to Psalm 51. You know, sometimes we are horrified to find out something far after the fact, like a certain young mother did. This mother shares this story. My son Zachary, four, came screaming out of the bathroom to tell me he had dropped his toothbrush in the toilet. So I fished it out and threw it in the garbage. Zachary stood thinking for a moment, then ran to my bathroom and came out with my toothbrush. He held it up and said with a charming little smile, we better throw this one out too because it fell in the toilet a few days ago. Now you parents of small children have something to ponder there. <laughs> you know, in the same way, we ought to be horrified <clears throat> to realize that there are things no other human being knows about us, but God does. God knows every one of them. King David in the Old Testament learned that lesson in a very dramatic and painful, but also a liberating way. One day David was in his palace doing whatever kings do in their palaces. And there he was. Powerful king, military hero, talented musician, respected leader, newlywed husband of a beautiful wife and the father of a newborn son. But David had a dirty little secret that he thought nobody knew except his trusted army general, and even he didn't probably know all the details. So on this particular day, God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to tell David a parable to paint a word picture that would get David's attention. And this parable, this word picture, would scare David to death, but in the process, it would change David's life. Here's the account in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, uh, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It even shared, it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger 
against that man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. But then notice what Nathan does in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Well, all of a sudden... David acknowledged what he had known in his heart all along, and that is that God already knew all about his adultery and how David had arranged to have the innocent husband killed in battle and how he then married the wife. So in verse 13, we see David's response to this parable and this conviction. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now that is the background for Psalm 51. As we read in the heading of Psalm 51. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery... With Bathsheba. And let me also add that obviously 10 to 12 or 13 months has passed in between the two events. It is significant that the Bible not only records in tragic detail how David fell into adultery with Bathsheba. We can read all that in 2 Samuel 11. But the Bible also describes in Psalm 51 the process of David's road back to God. In his own painful words. So this morning I want us to listen and learn as David cries out in pain and guilt. Confessing that he cannot get rid of his sin on his own. So he simply throws himself on the mercy of God. Asking for forgiveness and a brand new beginning. Now, unlike a lot of preachers, I'm not real fond of sermon titles. So a lot of Sundays, there's no title. I'll just have the passage up there. Sometimes there are. But this was one that all kinds of titles just jumped out as possibilities. I thought of at least four different titles I could have given a sermon. We could have called it The Road Back. That's really catchy, you know. Or Second Chances. Or maybe The Guilty Sinner's Guide Back to God. But what I arrived at is at the top of your page, your outline, Psalm 51, celebrating God's forgiveness. What a message for each of us. On your outline, on your four main points, are four things that we learn from how David handled his sin and his repentance. Here's the first one. 
And that is that you and I, all of us, must recognize or acknowledge our sin. Listen how David begins just crying from his heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. So if we're going to acknowledge and recognize our sins, we need to take personal responsibility for it. We have to take personal responsibility for our sin. Now, ironically, this is the very thing that our whiny, irresponsible culture is telling us not to do. We are urged over and over in our culture with words and in actions to play the victim card. It's not my fault. I know I did that, but it's not my fault. Or it's genetics. That's just the way I am. Or it's racism, or it's oppression, or it's the fault of my political opponent, or there was a conspiracy against me, (laughs) and I'm not responsible. Now, any of those factors may have played a role in somebody's sin, But folks, none of those things, none of those factors excuses our personal sin ever. Little boy, there's been a lot of little boy stories this morning. I don't know how that many ended up in the sermon, but little boy heard the story of Job in the Old Testament and all his horrible suffering. Never had heard the story before and his reaction was, as an American little boy, why didn't he sue somebody? That's the American way, isn't it? I'm going to sue somebody. Somebody else's fault. Or the boy who broke a window and his mother asked, who broke the window? He goes, my sister, she ducked when I threw the rock. <laughs> Always somebody else's fault. The blame game. Listen, friends. Sinful David did a very mature and healthy thing in these verses that helped begin his healing process. And the mature thing that David did was he called the sin his own sin and his own fault. And the key word there, the key word, write this in on your outline, is my. Five times in the first three verses he uses the word my. My transgressions. My iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin, my. Now, David could have made excuses. He could have said, if you've read 2 Samuel 11, well, she should not have undressed on her roof right into view of my palace. Well, that's very true. She shouldn't have. But it didn't excuse his sin. He was still guilty. She was guilty. She had to take care of her her sin. He had to take care of his own sin. It was still his sin. David could have said, do you realize how hard a lot of my life's been? Do you realize I had a king chasing me around for years? I was hiding in caves. He sent people constantly to try to kill me. Do you know what that's like? I deserve some pleasure. Or he could have said, you know, it's hard being king. There's all kind of pressure on on being king. There's always people demanding things. 
You know, a little fun, a little sexual pleasure is okay. I need some relief. No. David said, this is my sin. I did it. I own it. I own it. A couple decided they were going to quit going to a particular church, and the husband explained to his wife, he goes, I'm never going back to that church. That preacher made it sound like we're all sinners. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what the Bible says, we're all sinners, and we who are preachers need to convey that, we're all sinners. <laughs> you and I will never experience the full forgiveness from God as long as we keep following the devil's promptings for us to blame our sins on somebody else. And that's why it's so good for us to read David's words in verse 3, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. We need to take personal responsibility for our sins. But we have to go a step further than that, and that is to confess it. To confess it. Verse 3 again, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. See, what David is admitting there is that what happens when we haven't confessed our sins is the guilt's still eating at us, and it's always before us. It's always there. It just keeps coming back no matter how much we try to suppress it. So think about it, folks. Guilt, guilt can be a very good and healthy thing if it leads us to confess our sin and deal with it. Confession is a critical part of our personal prayer life and of our public worship. Have you noticed how many public people are constantly making non-apology apologies? They get caught doing something and, 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 or writing something or tweeting something or whatever the case may be, and, and their apology will be something like this. This is so common. Well, if I might have offended somebody with what I said, then I apologize. It's, it's like, that's not an apology. It's not a confession. Well, if I might have, you know how that goes. There's an, even an old hymn, and I don't even remember the name of it, went something like this. If I have wounded any soul today, if I have caused one foot to go astray, if I have walked in my own willful way, dear Lord, forgive. Well, there's no confession in that. <laughs> well, if I might... <laughs> no, I did. You did. We did. <laughs> 2 Samuel 11 tells the story of David's adultery and the subsequent getting rid of her husband. Psalm 51 tells of his confession and repentance. But there are some who suggest that Psalm 32 was a psalm that David is referring to that time, that 10 months, 12 months, 13 months, whatever it was, between the adultery and the confrontation in Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, David describes what it's like when you or I keep sin in our heart and don't confess it to God. Psalm 32, verse 3, David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. In other words, he was saying, it was eating me alive when I knew this sin was there, but I hadn't dealt with it. I hadn't confessed it. But then verse 5 is liberating. He goes, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
Folks, our confession of sin is a critical part of our spiritual and physical healing process. Proverbs 28, 13 puts it this way. It summarizes all that in one verse. It says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. If we are ever going to experience the wondrous forgiveness of God, we have got to be honest in our confessions with God and sometimes, if necessary, with others. All right, here's the second thing we learned from this psalm. That was the longest one. <laughs> second is that we must recognize that our sin is against God. Look what he prays in verses 4 through 6. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. It's significant to me that in the second Samuel account, after Nathan has come to David and David confesses, David says specifically, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, far too many people, including some Christians, have bought the myth that goes something like this. Oh, what's it matter if, if, if no one else gets hurt? Or, oh, it's just between two consenting adults. Oh, what's the big deal? Well, verse 4, David says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, we read that and we think, well, that's kind of strange because we know that David's sin had also hurt Bathsheba. It had also hurt her husband. It had hurt the people who had trusted him before. It had hurt his family and would for many years to come. But he knew that ultimately, he did know that ultimately sin is against God and it disappoints God no matter how many other people it hurts. So, point A, we need to see sin as God sees it. You and I need to see sin the same way God sees it. All right, another little boy. <laughs> little boy's with one of his parents at the uh, YMCA one day and uh, got lo lost. He was wandering around and wandered into the women's locker room. Okay, when he was spotted, all the Sunday's ladies... Scantily clad, notice this little boy walking around. The room bursts into shrieks and the ladies are grabbing towels to try to cover themselves. And the boy's watching all this reaction. And finally just says in amazement, he goes, what's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a little boy before? <laughs> you see, he didn't see the situation like they saw the situation. <laughs> you know, it's tragic when we don't view sin the same way God does. David uses, in verses 2 through 4, four different words about sin. And I think it's important for us to take a quick look at these words because it shows us a little bit about how God feels about sin. First of all, David called it, in verse uh, 1, uh, trans well, 1 and 3, transgression. That was literally a word that meant going outside the boundaries God has set. He also uses the word iniquity, another word for sin. And that literally had the idea of having a stain left on our soul, iniquity. He uses the word sin, the obvious one, which literally means missing the mark. And then he also, fourthly, uses the word evil. In other words, the wickedness of going against the will of God. 
So four descriptions of his sin, transgression, iniquity, sin, and evil. See, David understood that sin is rebellion against God and against the authority of God. In other words, it's like you and I, when we sin, are saying, God, I know you said this, but I'd rather do it this way. I defy you, God. That's what we're doing when we sin. Significant that the prophet Nathan, when he talked to David in verse 9, he said in 2 Samuel 12, that he had despised the word of the Lord. He tells David, you despise the word of the Lord. And that's why you committed adultery and why you did all these other things. You despised the word of the Lord. See, our sin is why Jesus went to the cross. So our sins must become just as hideous to us as they are to God. And we need to view them that way. Because in verse 6, he's indicating that God desires better for us. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. We need to see our sin as God sees it. But also point B, we need to see the justice in God's punishment. Boy, justice is a popular word in culture right now. Not always used exactly the way the Bible uses it. But we need to see justice in God's punishment of our sins. Verse 4, the last half, he says this to God. Do not miss this. He says, so that you, God, are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David is saying to God, God, when you punish my sin, you are justified to do so. When you punish me for my sin, you are justified doing that, God. See, that is justice being carried out when sin is punished. God's promise all through the Bible is that sin has consequences. Said that in Genesis 2, says it in Romans 6, says it all through Proverbs, all through the Bible. And here's the deal. You can write this statement in. We do not want God to treat us fair. There's not a person in this room who should want God to treat us fair. See, fair would mean punishment. Fair would mean death. Fair would mean hell because I'm a sinner. (laughs) And you're a sinner. And we have chosen to rebel against the authority of the Almighty God. Psalm 103.10 says that God does not treat us as our sins deserve and that's why all of us can honestly respond to the question how are you with the words better than I deserve no matter how good or bad I have in my life my life right now if someone asks how are you I ought to be able to say better than I deserve I am better than I deserve so David says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David began healing when he acknowledged that sin is against God and against God's authority. Here's the third thing we can learn from David, and this is better news. This is really, really better news. And that is we must recognize God's grace. See, everything I've just been saying should make us appreciate what we're about to say. Grace is undeserved favor. God treating me in a way, a positive way, that I do not deserve. It's not getting the punishment I deserve, and it's receiving the forgiveness I don't deserve. In verse 1, David realizes he has no chance. So he simply threw himself on the mercy of God. And that's because he understood Three things about grace. Number one, he understood the greatness of grace. 
He understood how incredible grace is. That's why he uses the words, your unfailing love, your great compassion. That's why songs through the ages have described grace with so many amazing words like amazing and matchless and marvelous and wonderful and infinite. Indeed, that's what grace is. So we understand, David understood the greatness of grace. But also, point B, the cleansing of grace. I want you to listen to the wording in some of the verses that talks about this idea of cleansing. Verse 2, he says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What a great thought. Verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. What an image. Having it blotted out. Verse 10, our our memory verse, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renewal, purity. It's possible through grace. Verse 14, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. Being saved from blood guilt. The cleansing of grace. Robert J. Morgan said there are four things that you and I can try to do to deal with our sin and our guilt. I'll start with D. Number one, we can try to drown it. We have that feeling of guilt. We have that sin overwhelming us. We know it's there. We can't deny it. We try to drown it. Some people try to drown it through escapism, things like alcohol, drugs, just to bury it so they they won't think about it. That doesn't work very long. Number two, we can try to deny it. There was... This is, this is big in our culture right now. No such thing as right or wrong. It might be wrong for you. It might be right for me. You know, but no, no such thing as truth. No such thing as right or wrong. Rename the sins. Try to deny it. That doesn't work very long. We can try to deflect it. That's what we talked about earlier. Blame somebody else. It's their fault. They treated me this way when I was a kid. That's why I did this when I was an adult. <laughs> but there's a fourth way. We can dissolve it, our sin, in the blood of Jesus. <laughs> and be done with it. And God can wash it away. That's what Titus is talking about in one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture about grace and about forgiveness. It says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We can be cleansed by the grace of God. But we also need to recognize, point C, the response to grace. Once we have experienced God's grace, His undeserved favor, His forgiveness, there's a certain response to that grace that God wants and desires of us. Verses 15 through 17 describe two important aspects of our response to that grace. David prays, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Verse 16, he's saying, you know, we, there's, no, we, there's not enough good things we can do or religious rituals to earn our forgiveness. So in verse 17, he says, no, what you want from me, God, in response to your grace, is a repentant heart. A repentant heart. An absolute heartbroken desire to never hurt God again. A sorrow that doesn't even allow for the possibility of repeating the sin. A mother listened as her little boy was saying his nightly prayers and at the end he's confessing something to God. And then he concluded uh, his prayer with some interesting words. So she made this comment afterwards. She goes, I think it's a bad sign, son, when you end your confession time with to be continued. So it's almost like the kid says, God, forgive me for doing such and such. Now, I may do it again and may come back and talk to you again. <laughs> Listen, biblical heartbroken repentance is when you and I don't want to ever, ever continue that sin again in our life. A professor, R.J. Kidwell, speaking on this passage, said, If you love the sin more than you love God, you can't repent. If you love the sin more than you love God, you can't repent. See, that's why David prayed for a willing spirit in verse 12. So he could have a repentant heart. But the other aspect of our response when we have that repentant heart is in verse 15, and that is a praising mouth. In other words, our mouth is more than thrilled to be able to share our praise for God because he has shown us grace. End of verse 14, he says... My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David was so grateful and excited about God's grace and forgiveness that he was anxious to tell absolutely everybody about it. And that brings us to our fourth and final thing we learned from this incredible psalm, from David's prayer and repentance. And that is that we must recognize the result of God's cleansing. And this is the best news of all. This powerful psalm began with anguish of heart, but it ends with worship and praise and hope because David has been forgiven. And the same can be true in our lives. So here's three quick results that we noticed because of God's grace in cleansing. And that is point A, newness. We can be new. That's our memory verse. Again, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew me, God. Renew me. He started out in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Wash them away. That's renewal. In other words, we can have a new heart and a new spirit, no matter what we've done in the past. And you realize that as New Testament Christians, God gives us something that's even beyond what he gave David. He gives us the Holy Spirit to come and live in us, on the day of Pentecost, when God had explained for the first time uh, what Jesus had done on the cross and how we can be forgiven, Acts 2 and verse 38 tells about our initial response after we come to believe in what Jesus said and did. Peter replied when they said, what must we do? <laughs> Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then there are really two cool things that happen. For the forgiveness of your sins and... You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God says, I'll take away your sins, and then I'll give you the Holy Spirit to live in you to help you do better. 
A young man once read Psalm 51 for the very first time. And he remarked that he felt like all his life in the guilt about his sin, he had just simply been holding his breath. And he goes, now that I've read Psalm 51, I feel like I can exhale. I can finally exhale. See, David could relate to that. There was a newness about David because God had taken his sin away. But it was also the result of joy. David wasn't feeling much joy for 10 or 12 months because he knew in his heart what he had done. So in verse 8, he prays, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Verse 12, he prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, David is saying, I can now have joy again that I had not experienced for 10 or 12 months with unresolved sin. A London psychologist once told evangelist Billy Graham that he thought 70% of the people in mental hospitals in England could be released if they could just find forgiveness. 70% of the people in the mental hospitals, he said, could go free if they would find and experience forgiveness. Because their problem was a bad conscience, not knowing how to deal with their guilt, they could gain no relief from the guilt and the pressure under which, which they lived. They needed the newness and joy that come with forgiveness. And that brings us to our final result of God's cleansing, and that is usefulness. It's interesting to me in verse 12 when David's praying for God to restore the joy of his salvation, grant him a willing spirit. And then in verse 13 he says, Then... In other words, once you do that, then I'll be able to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. For 18 verses, he's talking about this need of forgiveness. So therefore, in verse 19, David closes and says, Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. In other words, God's saying, well, once there's cleansing, then we're freed to be useful to him. So I think there's a warning in that and there's also a blessing. The warning in that is that it's only after true repentance and forgiveness that God can fully use us. That he can fully use us. So I wonder, is there some sin keeping you from being useful to God? Because you've never dealt with that sin. But there's also a blessing with those words, and that is that even though every one of us has blown it, even if you or I blow it in a big-time way, God can potentially still use us. God used Noah, who had once gotten drunk. God used Mo Moses, who had once killed a man. God used Peter, who had three times denied Jesus. God used Paul, who had once persecuted Christians. God used David, who had once committed adultery and was complicit in murder. And God, that means, can use you or me despite what we've done. Verse 13, he says, Then I will teach, teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. David was so excited to help other people find the same forgiveness and usefulness that he had. 
And that's why we call it the wonderful grace of Jesus. That you or I, as stinky sinners, <laughs> can be forgiven and still used by God. God can restore peace and wholeness to any of us. To any of us. So I ask you this morning, do you have some sin that's haunting you like David had for about 10 or 12 months? And I ask you this question, do you want a new restored life like David did? Do you want peace? Are you ready to become a Christian? Are you who was already a Christian but still need to deal with a particular sin today that's blocking God's blessing and usefulness in your life? And so we pray, our memory prayer verse, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's what our decision time is about every Sunday. So let's all turn from our sins and abandon our excuses and our fears and acknowledge our sins and seek God's forgiveness, whatever that looks like today. Real quick, let me illustrate it this way. Occasionally you read in the paper about someone committing a crime and they basically have two options at that point. They're going to be uh, going to trial, and they're going to be tried for that crime. And most of them will uh, hire an attorney or accept an attorney from the state. But occasionally you'll read about some criminal that says, no, I'm going to represent myself. And they'll say, and so-and-so has chosen to represent himself or herself. And you're thinking, that's really stupid. <laughs> you could have an attorney who knows what they're doing, knows the questions to ask, the things to say, not to say. But you're going to represent yourself. And yet, if you think about it, that is the same two choices you and I have about standing before God on the judgment day in the future. We can choose to represent ourselves <laughs> and try to plead our case with God that we're perfect and sinless and we deserve to go to heaven and God would be lucky to have us. <laughs> we can try that. Or we can choose to allow Jesus to serve as our defense attorney, which is what 1 John 2, 1 and 2 describes Jesus as. He says, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. It's a word for an attorney. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And some translations say uh, he, he speaks to the Father in our defense. Well... I don't know what you're going to choose, but I'm not doing the defend myself thing when I stand before God because I'm too scared and realistic to do that as a sinner. So I choose to let Jesus be my defense attorney when I stand before God and say, yes, Tom accepted. He, he's a lousy sinner, <laughs> but he accepted my grace and forgiveness many, many years ago. And he followed me, still foul some, still slipped, still messed up. But he trusted in me and in my blood to take away his sins. He's mine. And God will see the blood of Jesus covering my sins. And then I've got a chance. I've got hope. So here's the good news at the bottom of your page. God specializes in new beginnings. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, new beginnings. And I hope you will be wise enough that you choose to accept Jesus as your defense attorney, and don't try to argue your own case before God someday at the judgment. But you say, I'm going to let Jesus, the defense attorney, do it. And I'm going to celebrate his grace and forgiveness, and I'm going to walk with hope in my life.
So let's stand and let's sing and let's prepare our hearts, no matter what that looks like today, to meet our God, to meet our judge, and to walk with God in renewed cleansing and hope because of the forgiveness God offers us today. And it begins with letting Him have our hearts completely. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.